Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Secret of the Samurai Sword by Phyllis A. Whitney. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. Centuries ago, when I was a kid, we lived across the street from the public library. That's one of the things that got me addicted to books. When I haunted the library, I read a huge selection of tomes, but among my favorites were mystery books. I would literally just pick a juvenile novel based on its title the mystery of this or the secret of that. Most of Phyllis Whitney's books were already decades old by the time I came across them, and they fit my needs perfectly. Whitney understood kids, she had a great imagination, and she had a real talent for setting up a mystery. The Secret of the Samurai Sword was one of the books I read when I was a kid. It was published originally in 1958 and has been reprinted a couple of times since, But it has been out of print since the mid-80s, and you'll be hard-pressed to find a copy. The story itself is a bit more modern than the Rick Brandt books in terms of setting by almost a decade. I will not spoil the story much. I will only say that it concerns Celia and Stephen Bronson and their visit to Japan to spend a summer vacation with their vivacious book-writing grandmother. There they find a strange mystery awaiting them. Whitney grew up in Japan, so she knows her setting in detail and evokes post-World War II Japan beautifully. And now, The Secret of the Samurai Sword. Chapter 1. The Haunted Garden High over the Pacific Ocean, a plane was winking toward the islands of Japan. Inside its long cabin, the stewardess had dimmed the overhead lights so that those passengers who wished could sleep. In tourist class, up toward the front, she had two special charges, an American boy and girl who were flying to Japan to spend the summer vacation with their grandmother. The boy was already asleep, his fair head back against a reclining seat. But the girl only seemed to sleep. The stewardess could not know that her thoughts stirred in excitement and anticipation keeping her awake. What would Japan be like, Celia was wondering, and this grandmother she could not remember. Tired though she was from the long flight, she kept thinking of picture after attractive picture. They would have a house with a garden, Gran had written, a Japanese house with a lovely garden. Many miles ahead of the plain, like dark dots upon the ocean, lay the islands of Japan, Above, Osuki-sama, the goddess moon, rode the night sky, bathing the scenes below in soft, shimmering light. On a Kyoto hillside, a house waited, still and quiet, as if it held its breath for what was to come. In the garden of the little house, something strange moved in the shadows, while across the alley of a narrow street, a man in a kimono waited motionless watching the garden. He was an old man with a smooth-shaven head, and even in the pale light there was something noble and benign about his features as he knelt on a cushion beside the rail of a narrow gallery. He watched the garden earnestly, for he knew the other house well and knew that for the moment it stood empty. Yet he was not surprised when he saw movement in the shadows. He had seen this before and knew what to expect. In the warm night, beads of perspiration stood out upon his forehead, and his hands gripped the smooth wood of the rail more tightly than he knew. 
Beyond the bamboo fence of the house across the way, the shadowy thing stirred, moving softly into the moonlight. Now its garb was evident, that of a samurai, a warrior of feudal days, and the grimacing face shone inhumanly white in the moonlight, the face of one mortally wounded. But so smooth and silently did it drift across the garden, so swiftly did it vanish from sight, that unless a man were sleepless and watching, the restless spirit of the samurai would never be seen. The old man was an artist, and his senses responded to the shining night. The shimmer of plumy bamboo in the opposite garden, the twisted shadow of a pine tree. His hands slowly relaxed, and the sweat dried upon his forehead. The spirit had come and gone, yet he was no wiser than before as to why it had come at all, or what it wanted. It had worn no sword, and that fact troubled him. A samurai without a sword was like a man without his right arm. Yet despite the puzzle, the old man felt strangely comforted. In the years since the war had ended, there had been much confusion in his soul. But now something from the ancient past was reaching out to touch him. The spirit of Japan still lived. The bombs and the coming of foreigners had not destroyed it. He went inside his mat room and laid down to sleep comforted and consoled. More Americans were coming to that house, and he could not like the Americans. But at least their presence had not driven away the spirit in the garden. Nothing moved now in the shadowy space between pine tree and fence. The plumes of bamboo hung quiet in the still air. The house waited in darkness. They could not know that it waited for the coming of a girl a girl from a distant land, who would hold in her hand the key to all these things. Over the Pacific flew the plane, its engines roaring steadily, confidently, as the miles sped by. Chapter 2 The Flight Bag It was two days later, a misty noonday with little sun. The express train from Tokyo to Kyoto sped along the coastline, with the sea on the one side and mountains on the other. In the last car, Celia and Stephen Bronson occupied a section with their grandmother. Celia sat next to a window, across from her brother, and watched the paddy fields and tile-roofed villages fly past, hardly able to believe what was happening. Three days ago, she and Stephen had been home in Berkeley, California. In the meantime, the great Pacific Ocean had been flown, and here they were in Japan to visit their grandmother for the summer, a grandmother whom they had not seen since they were practically babies. Celia glanced at the woman on the seat beside her. A stranger was her father's mother, and once more she liked the surprise of what she saw. Grandmothers in stories were usually elderly and white-haired. They sat in rocking chairs knitting. But Monica Bronson's hair was brown, and her gray eyes were young and alive. She was as smartly dressed in her blue Shantung suit as a model in a fashion magazine, and she wore lipstick and had a touch of color in her cheeks. Celia found it hard to imagine those pretty hands with the rose-tipped nails quietly knitting, but she knew they could fly over the keys of a typewriter. Mrs. Bronson was the author of several travel books about the country she loved to visit, 
and this summer she would be writing a book about Japan. Her last book had been an unexpected bestseller, and she felt there couldn't be a nicer way to spend extra royalties than to have her grandchildren visit Japan during their vacation, especially since she would be settled for a time in one place. Grand caught Celia's glance and smiled at her warmly. Think you're going to like Japan, Celia? And you, Stephen? Stephen answered first, as he usually did. It'll be a good place for taking pictures. He patted the leather case of the camera. He had worked all last summer to get the money to buy it. Celia smiled at Grand, but let her brother speak for them both. Stephen's hair was as fair as her own shoulder-length fluff, but his eyes were brighter blue, a lively, sparkling blue. Perhaps lively was the best word for Stephen, Celia thought. He always seemed to surge with eagerness and energy, and sometimes impatience. But it was a different sort of eagerness from Celia's. Stephen had an eagerness to be forever moving and doing, while there were times when Celia was happy merely to sit and dream. Stephen was fifteen, a little more than a year older than his sister. She admired him secretly, and sometimes envied his assurance and his ability to do so many things well. "'You'll be finding some pictures, too, I expect,' Grant said to her. "'Your mother writes me that you've quite a gift with a pencil and paintbrush.' I used to draw a bit when I was young, before I gave it up for writing. Celia could sense Grand's affection reaching out to her, but she still held back a little, uncertain, and not quite sure she could earn that affection. Sometimes the thing you wanted too much seemed to slip away from you like a will-o'-wisp. She said nothing about her painting because she thought gift was too important a word for her rather unsatisfactory efforts. Stephen got up suddenly from the red plush seat and began scrabbling through their hand baggage on the rack overhead, as if he just thought of something. Hey, he said, where's that blue flight bag? The one we brought off the plane yesterday. The flight bag. Celia suddenly felt a little sick. She closed her eyes and could see the bag plainly. She could even see the bag's interior, with Stephen's light meter, his extra supply of film, her brown loafers, as well as several books she had brought along to read in quiet moments. Yes, she could see it as plainly as though it were right in front of her, only it wasn't right in front of her. It was back in Tokyo, right on the closet shelf where she had left it at the hotel. Before she could speak, Stephen gave up his search and looked at her accusingly. You were supposed to take care of that bag when Gran went downstairs to pay the hotel bill. I was carrying the heavy things. All you had to do was look after that one little flight bag. Didn't you bring it from the hotel? Celia shook her head mutely. There was no excuse she could offer. It was perfectly true that the responsibility had been hers, and that it was a very little thing to look after. But she had been so excited thinking about this trip and about what Kyoto would be like that she'd forgotten to take a last look at the closet before she'd followed Stephen downstairs. He read the truth in her face and scowled mightily. Gran glanced quickly from one to the other. What's the matter, Stephen? Has something been left behind? Despairingly, Stephen flung himself into his seat. My light meter is in that bag. Dad gave it to me just last Christmas, and it cost plenty. But she had to leave it at the hotel. Beautiful, but dumb. 
That's my sister. Celia looked out at the flying landscape and blinked her lashes hard. So quickly had he managed to use that hateful phrase in front of Gran. It had been dumb of her to forget the bag. It's too bad, Gran said calmly, but I'll write the hotel a note and we'll mail it when we get to Kyoto. Then the bag can be sent on to us right away. Stephen continued to glare at Celia. It'll be fine if nobody steals that meter. The Japs go in for photography and... Gran spoke quickly and quietly, but there was something in her tone that Celia had not heard before and she looked at her grandmother, startled. Stephen, the Japanese are for the most part extremely honest. It's quite likely you'll get the bag back with everything untouched inside of it. But in any case, you must remember that when we are guests of another country, we do not use discourteous terms toward the people of that country. Stephen wriggled a bit and looked uncomfortable. Okay. I'm sorry. Then he hurried to change the subject. I'm getting hungry. Do they serve lunch on this train? Gran glanced at her watch. I have a notion about lunch. Of course, we could have food in the dining car if you like. But I think we're coming to a station soon, and it might be more fun for each of us to get a bento. That's a Japanese boxed lunch. What sort of lunch is a bento? Stephen asked. But Gran only smiled. Wait and see, she said. Then while we eat, I'll tell you something about our house in Kyoto. Celia turned her attention once more to the flying world outside, the green wooded mountains, the watery paddy fields where new green rice was growing, the little square fields wherever there was level space, and sometimes they went like steps up a hillside. In their watery surface, they mixed the light of the gray sky and turned that greenish too. Always her eye was caught by the little brown figures of men and women, and even children, bent over in a back-breaking position as they worked in the fields. But now the train was slowing and the outskirts of a town came into view. In a few moments, they had reached the station, and Gran got up quickly and put her hands on the window. Here, Stephen, help me open it. In a moment, the window had been flung upward, letting out all the air conditioning of their special car. However, since several others were doing the same thing, it didn't seem to matter much. Gran leaned out the window, opening to call something to a vendor. Celia saw women moving along the platform with trays, piled high with boxes, slung about their necks. Down the length of the train, passengers were leaning out, waving and calling to the vendors. Gran had been in Japan a number of times and spoke a little Japanese. Now she held up three fingers and spoke a few Japanese words to a vendor. At once, three boxes were handed through the window, and when Gran had paid for them, she beckoned to another woman selling tea. Three small clay teapots were exchanged for a few coins, and Stephen helped bring them inside. On the platform, groups of Japanese, some in kimonos, some in western dress, were hurrying to get aboard or bowing low to friends who were leaving. Japanese trains, Celia was discovering, did not linger very long in the station, and nobody waited if you didn't have your baggage on or off. Quickly, the guard blew a whistle. Their train whistled back, and they were off again. 
Celia was thankful for the interruption that had taken Stephen's attention and made him forget for the moment the bag left in Tokyo. The box lunches were attractively wrapped in brightly printed paper and tied with paper string. Stephen already had his open and was breaking apart the wooden chopsticks that lay inside. Carefully, Celia lifted the thin wooden cover on her box. The food looked as pretty as a little painted picture. There were neat rolls of rice speckled with bits of colored vegetable and wrapped in a thin black sheath of what Gran said was seaweed and really delicious. There were some dabs of brown beans, bits of fish, and pickled radish, all as carefully arranged as if the whole thing was to be preserved instead of eaten right away. Celia picked up the chopsticks and did her best to imitate Gran in holding them. The beans looked most familiar, so she tried them first. She found them a little like baked beans at home and quite good. The cold rice and seaweed were surprisingly good, too, and so were some of the pickled vegetables. But she couldn't manage a bit of the raw pink fish. Don't worry, Gran said, wielding her own chopsticks expertly. The bento was only for fun. Eat what you like, and then we'll open the bag of fruit I've brought along. And now I must tell you about the house where we're going to live in Kyoto. It used to belong to a Japanese family that has lived there for many years, but during the occupation the army took it over and made some changes. So now it's part Western and part Japanese, and we'll have a real bathroom. The last Americans who occupied it have gone home, and I've been able to take it furnished for the summer. She ate a piece of fish and then added cheerfully, I understand it's supposed to be haunted. She sounded as though haunted houses were quite common in Japan and Stephen paused with his chopsticks halfway to his mouth, staring at her in surprise. Gran leaned over to get two of the little clay teapots from the floor beneath her seat, giving one to Celia and the other to Stephen, before she picked up her own. "'Do try the green tea and tell me how you like it,' she said as calmly as though she had never mentioned a haunted house. But Stephen was not to be distracted. He dangled the hot bit of pottery by its handle and returned to the point. "'What do you mean, haunted?' he asked in disbelief. "'Oh, people say that queer things happen there.' The lid of the teapot was a small cup. She poured hot green liquid into it. "'There's supposed to be some sort of apparition that visits the garden. I went down a few weeks ago to have a look at the house and talk to the servants who were going to stay with us. The American woman who lived there told me that the Japanese in the neighborhood have some curious notions about the place, though she had never seen or heard anything unusual herself. Maybe we'll be more lucky. I could use a Japanese ghost for my book. Stephen wrinkled his nose at such nonsense. I'll have to see a ghost before I believe in one, he said. So, you're a realist, are you? Gran's gray eyes twinkled. What about you, Celia? Celia hesitated, sipping the green tea and liking its faintly bitter taste. It was sometimes dangerous to speak out her thoughts in front of Stephen, especially when he was mad at her, as he was now. But Gran looked sympathetic. I'd rather believe in ghosts than see one, Celia said. Stephen snorted, but before he could speak, Gran went on. Stephen? Don't be so sure you'll find everything in Japan just the way it is in the States. This is a country filled with legends and fantasy. 
In fact, spirits are so much a part of everyday living in Japan that I'm not sure a lot of Japanese don't make very much distinction between what's real and what's not. Personally, I'm looking forward to a haunted house. Years ago, Kyoto was the capital of Japan, and history there goes back into the legendary past. Wasn't Kyoto bombed like Tokyo and Yokohama? Stephen asked. Fortunately, no, Graham said. That's one reason I'm anxious to stay there and get material for my book. None of the old temples and shrines have been touched, and there is still a lot of ancient Japan to be seen. Celia wrapped up the lunchbox and put it under the seat with the teapot, all of which would be collected at a later station. Then she settled dreamily into her corner beside the window. Except for that matter of the flight bag left in Tokyo, she felt happy and contented. Japan was so beautiful. Even though the sky was misty and the higher, faraway mountains mostly hidden, everything nearby looked like a picture. The small green mountains were as pretty as though they had been carefully arranged for a watercolor. The graceful pine trees, the lighter green of the bamboo thickets, the sudden exclamation point of a red gate leading to a shrine. All of this added to the charm of the landscape. Already she was longing to capture something of that charm on paper. Kyoto would be different from busy, noisy Tokyo. She pictured it as a quiet little historic town in the mountains, with all the ladies wearing beautiful kimonos, and maybe riding in some of those rickshaws that she had read about in books, and which had completely vanished from Tokyo. Most of all, though, she looked forward to the little Japanese house that waited for them. A house with a Japanese ghost haunting it seemed especially picturesque and appropriate. She could imagine a delicate wisp of a Japanese lady ghost, perhaps a lady who had long ago died for love and continued to return to the garden where she had once been happy. No one could be frightened of such a ghost or even mind meeting her. It was a lovely picture. Chapter 3 The Girl with the Ponytail At first sight, Kyoto was disappointing. It was a sprawling, gray city with busy streets along which people hurried just as they had in Tokyo. Perhaps there was a greater sprinkling of kimonos among them, but most of the women and all the men dressed like Americans. Gran, Celia, and Stephen carried their bags through the big modern station and found a line of taxis waiting. Not a rickshaw in sight. If there were mountains visible, Celia couldn't see them because of the lowering gray sky, mist-laden, which seemed to hover just above the tops of the houses. First, Gran found a mailbox and dropped in the letter about the flight bag that she'd written on the train. Then they got into a taxi. Gran had a little trouble explaining the address to the driver because in Japan there were often no house numbers and sometimes not even street names. Fortunately, Gran had been here before so she would know the house without ringing doorbells and asking questions. The horns Celia found were just as noisy as in Tokyo with every driver blowing like mad practically all the time. At least this didn't look like an American city. There was no mistake about being in Japan. Most of the little shops had open fronts, with all the goods set out in neat rows tilted toward the street, so you could see everything at a glance. 
Everywhere there were attractive, rosy-cheeked children with straight black hair and lively, slanted black eyes. Once, when the taxi stopped at a crossing, children ran to the curb to stare at Celia and Stephen. It's because you're so blonde, Rand said, and spoke a Japanese greeting to the children, but they only stared at her steadily and didn't answer. The house was away from the main rows, and the taxi had to slow down as it found its way uphill through streets so narrow they were hardly more than alleys. Their house was the last one on the street, and Gran told the driver where to stop. Here we are, she cried. Welcome to Kyoto. Celia got out of the cab with Stephen after her, and stood before a tile-roofed wooden gate set in a bamboo fence. Gran rang the bell and paid the driver. In a moment they could hear the clop and scuff of wooden geta as the maid came to open the gate. She was a smiling, round-cheeked little thing in a gray kimono, her black hair bobbed and curled in a neat modern permanent. This is Tani-san, Gran said, or as we would say, Miss Tani. She worked for the last Americans who lived here, and so did our cook, Setsuko-san, so I know we'll be well taken care of. Tani smiled and bowed clear to her knees in greeting. Then she reached for the bag Stephen carried, while Setsuko came hurrying out to help with the other baggage. The cook was a gray-haired little woman with snapping black eyes that appraised them at a glance, but did not give away what she was thinking. Men get first attention in Japan, Gran whispered to Celia as Tani slip-slapped off with Stephen's baggage. Big, rounded stepping stones led the way through a tiny entrance garden to the front door. The house did not face the street, but stretched its length uphill, parallel with the narrow alley, the bamboo fence running all the way around. It was of unpainted wood like all Japanese houses, and weathered to a grayish-brown. The overhanging roof was of gray tile, and while the lower floor had conventional western windows, unlike the sliding doors of other houses on the street, the upper floor was open all the way through. At the entrance, Celia stepped up on a long slab of stone that led to the floor of the entryway. On it were several pairs of geta and a pair of flat zori, or sandals. Off with your shoes, Gran said. She sat down on the entrance floor and removed her shoes. Stephen got his shoes off first and stepped up onto the polished floor in his socks. When Celia followed, she saw an array of bedroom slippers with plastic tops waiting to be used. She chose a pink pair and then stood looking about the entry hall. There was nothing to break the clean expanse of darkly shining floor and walls, except a single tall blue vase set in one corner with purple irises arranged in it. The overhead beam of the entrance was a natural tree branch worked into the ceiling. Come along, Gran said. I'm anxious to show you the house. The mats have all been taken out downstairs and regular floors and walls put in, so we have American furniture down there. There was a living room and an adjacent dining room that looked like rooms at home. The furniture was low and made of bamboo and rattan, and there were bookcases set on either side of a western-style fireplace. Gran led the way through a modern kitchen with a small brown wooden icebox in it. 
On the other side of the entryway, connecting it with the kitchen, steep narrow stairs ran upward to the second floor. The stairs were uncarpeted and slippery, so Celia clung to the long bamboo rail that ran up the wall. Tani had left her gaita on the stone step outside and wore something on her feet that looked like white cloth mittens, the big toe separated from the rest. These were called tabby. Inside, she walked around with these. Upstairs, there were three rooms set in a row, with a narrow, open veranda running around them, serving as a hallway. The rooms themselves had traditional straw matting laid over the floor. Tatami, Grand said, the mats were called. Light, wheat-colored matting was fastened together in squares by strips of black binding cloth. Celia found the matting springy beneath her feet, and not at all hard. The three rooms were separated by fusuma, thin walls that slid in grooves, as did the doors, and they were almost bare of furniture. Where do we keep our clothes and things? Stephen asked, looking about curiously. And where do we sleep? Tani understood a little English, and she padded to a sliding door and moved it on its track, revealing a closet. Usually, Gran explained, Japanese pulled everything away on shelves, but a few shelves have been removed from these cupboards so we can hang up our clothes. You can see the bedding piled up in there on the remaining shelves. Suppose I take this end room, and you the one in the middle, Celia. Then Stephen can have the one beyond. It seemed like a good plan, and they went into their own rooms to unpack. Slippers were left outside on the veranda floor. One walked around on the tatami only in socks or stockings. With no chairs and no waist-high tables, it was necessary to sit on the floor for whatever you wanted to do, including unpacking of a suitcase. Celia found there were just two pieces of furniture in her room. One was a low oval table of reddish lacquer set in the middle of the room. The other was a curious little dressing table. A green silk cushion lay on the matting before it, and Celia went down on her knees to examine the dresser more closely. It sat right on the floor without legs, and it was almost like a doll's dressing table. A narrow mirror, perhaps two feet high, with a cloth cover over it, rose above a small ledge, and there were three small drawers and a tier at one side. The surface was a reddish-brown lacquer with traces of gold decoration, but the lacquer was old and there were cracks and chips in it here and there. I thought you'd like it, Gran said, looking in from the veranda. I found it downstairs in a room that's been used for storage. I suppose it was discarded because the lacquer's chipped, but I think it's rather nice. She nodded at Celia and went back into her own room. Celia pulled out the little drawers of the dresser by the brass rings of their handles. The top two were empty, but there was something in the bottom drawer. She reached in and took out an oblong box of black lacquer. It was a small box, with a beautiful little pine tree painted in gold on its surface, its long needles done in feathery gold strokes. Little clusters of gold needles lay on the ground beneath the tree. It would be a lovely box to keep bits of jewelry in, and she took off the top to look inside. The box was empty, but it too looked old and a little battered, and there were some scratches on the shallow bottom. Celia put her find back in the drawer and crossed the room to the narrow rear veranda. She could unpack any time, but now she wanted to see what might be glimpsed of Kyoto. 
This part of the house looked out upon the garden and green hillside, with other smaller houses visible to the right across the street. What had been only a hint of garden at the front of their house ran along one side and opened into something that had the delicacy of a Japanese print. Below the veranda rail was a small fish pond, with a glint of goldfish darting beneath the surface of the water. Again there were stepping stones and a small symmetrical stone lantern. A pine tree as graceful as the one on the lacquer box grew beside the lantern, and in one corner of the garden was a feathery clump of bamboo. There were no flower beds, but a flowering bush of red azalea gave the garden a note of bright color. The scene was one that made Celia long to paint it. She could imagine what the garden would look like on a moonlit night. It would be the perfect place for the gentle, kimono-clad ghost of her imagination. Only one ugly note spoiled the perfection. In the middle of the garden, beyond the fish pond, rose an ugly lump of rounded concrete. It stood several feet high and looked completely out of place. Before she turned away, she looked across the two-story Japanese houses that lined the street. They, too, were weathered to a grayish-brown with sloping gray roofs. In some of them, reed blinds hung in the upper rooms to shut out the afternoon glare. But as she watched, a blind to the last house across the street was pushed aside, and a Japanese girl stepped out onto the veranda. She bent to examine several plants set on a wooden ledge, but Celia suspected that she only pretended her interest in them, because every now and then she cast a sidelong glance in Celia's direction. The girl wore a green blouse and a brown cotton skirt, and while there were the same black bangs across her forehead that many Japanese girls wore, her long hair was drawn back to form a ponytail behind. In Tokyo, Celia had seen a number of girls in the street wearing their hair in that fashion, so it wasn't too unusual. But this girl flipped it about as she moved her head in a gesture that seemed almost American. If she knew the word Japanese, Celia thought, she might call hello to the other girl. In fact, why shouldn't she just call hello anyway, even if she didn't know how to say it in Japanese? She waved her arm to get the other girl's attention and received a surprised look in return. Hi, Celia called. Hello? For just a moment, she thought the Japanese girl might smile in return, but then an elderly man in a gray kimono stepped out onto the veranda beside her. His head was as completely bald as if it had been shaved, and he looked rather distinguished and dignified. He spoke quietly to the girl, who turned and went inside as if in obedience to his words. Gran must have heard Celia's call, for she came out to see what was happening. At the sight of the old man on the opposite veranda, she made a polite bow. But though he returned the bow gravely, he did not smile, and he went inside at once. The reed blind swung behind him, and the other house was still. Celia was puzzled. He didn't seem very friendly. I don't think he wanted that girl to talk to me. We're strangers, and he doesn't know us yet, Gran said. He looks like an important person to me, because of his bearing and that fine kimono he was wearing. Most men these days wear western dress in Japan, or else in summertime, they get into cotton yukata at home. Yukata is a comfortable summer kimono everyone wears. Well, we'll go slowly and not push. 
You'll find most Japanese ready to be friendly. Celia felt disappointed. There weren't likely to be many American girls in Kyoto, and the girl with the ponytail had looked as though she might be fun to know. Tani came upstairs with word that a visitor was at the door to see them. From a house in the neighborhood, she indicated. Gran laughed. It started sooner than usual. I've a few more things I want to do. Celia, can you leave your unpacking and go downstairs? Celia could leave her unpacking easily enough, but she was hesitant about going down to meet a stranger. Gran patted her shoulder. Run along, you'll probably make a new friend, and I'll send Stephen down to join you. Thus urged, Celia went downstairs and into the living room. A Japanese boy of about seventeen stood in the middle of the room, examining with interest some books Gran had dropped on the table when she came in. He wore the dark trousers and white shirt of the student, and there were round-lens glasses with horn rims hooked over his ears. When he saw Celia, he snapped to attention and made her a courteous bow. "'Good morning, sir,' he greeted her, though the sun was already slipping down the sky. "'Please excuse me if I am coming so fast.' Celia blinked and said, "'Hello?' uncertainly. The young man bowed again. "'Name is Hirosato. I am coming here to learn English.' And now he beamed at her, smiling broadly. It was a good thing Stephen appeared in the doorway just then. The sight of another boy, Hiro, looked delighted. He bowed again and repeated the words with which he had greeted Celia. Stephen rose to the occasion. "'Sure, I'll teach you English,' he said, grinning in amusement. First of all, you don't say good morning when it's practically evening. You say good evening, or you could just say hello.' Hiro drew in his breath. "'Hello, I know how to say,' he told them with dignity. That's not right, Stephen said. Why don't you sit down and we'll try again? They were still trying the L sound that was so difficult, since the Japanese have no such sound in their language, when Gran joined them. She said, Konbanwa, which Celia thought meant good evening, and exchanged a few words with the boy in his own language. Hiro is anxious to practice his English and learn more of the language, she explained. He lives near here, and I gather that he wanted to get to us before anyone else did. Students learn a little English in school, but they don't have much chance to use it. Perhaps if you help him, he'll teach you some Japanese. Ask him if he plays baseball, Stephen requested. But Hiro knew the word. Besoboru, he said, and jumped up to make a catching motion in the air. Then he realized what he had done and blushed and sat down again, looking self-conscious. Tani, who had been watching, murmured to Gran, Soon comes dinner. Hiro must have understood the word because he stood up at once, profusely apologetic, and started for the door. Come over tomorrow, Stephen invited, and Hiro bowed again delightedly, put on his shoes, and hurried out the gate. Stephen laughed out loud. Wow, what an oddball! You suppose he really knows anything about baseball? Gran looked as if she might say something rather sharp to Stephen and then changed her mind. The Japanese are great baseball fans, she said mildly, and I suspect that he can probably teach you a few things. Tony announced dinner when they went to the table. Setsuko knew American tastes, and the meal was good. Afterwards, Celia went upstairs and unpacked. 
Most of her things fitted into the closet and on the shelves, but she left her painting and sketching kit out because she would probably want to use these things in the morning. As she worked, Tani came in with a bow and began laying out the thick padded quilts that would make her bed for the night. Accompanying the maid was a rangy ginger-colored cat which was plainly at home in the house. Celia, who loved cats, went down to her knees and held out her hand to make its acquaintance. The cat sniffed her fingers impersonally and went off about the room on a tour of inspection. Cat belong to Setsuko-san, Tani said. All the time hungry. What's its name? Celia asked. Tani was on her knees, spreading out one layer after another of thick, quilt-like padding. She bent double, laughing as though Celia had said something funny. Gran called out an explanation. I understand that wherever Satsuko-san takes the cat, the American family she works for gives it a new name, so she just calls it Neko-chan, which means little cat in Japanese. The ginger cat evidently didn't understand her pronunciation of its name, for it yawned and sat down to wash its face. It was growing darker outside, and Celia gave up trying to make friends with the cat. She went to the veranda rail to look out into the garden again. No moon lit the misty sky, but she could still make out the graceful shape of the pine tree and the glimmering mirror of the fish pond. Then she saw something stooped and strange that startled her for just a moment. It seemed as though something ghostly was huddled down there in the dark garden. She looked again more closely and saw that it was only the hulk of concrete that she had noticed earlier. At her soft exclamation, Tani left her bed-making and came to her side. Nandetsuka, the maid asked. What is the matter? What's that concrete thing down there in the garden? Celia asked the maid. Tani peered into the dusk. For Bakudan, she said. Then noting Celia's puzzlement, she stretched out her arms like the wings of a plane and sailed up and down the veranda, making a buzzing noise. Boom, 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 she finished triumphantly. Celia understood. The people of Kyoto hadn't known they wouldn't be bombed and had probably built shelters like everyone else in Japan. Now the ugly thing remained to spoil the lovely garden. Thinking of the garden reminded her of another question. Is the garden really haunted, Tani-san? she asked. The little maid smiled at her happily, but without comprehension. Y you know, ghosts? Spirits? The difficulty of getting through the barrier of language was making itself felt again. She couldn't think of any way to describe a ghost with gestures, as Tani had done with an airplane. She went down the veranda to her grandmother's room and looked in. Gran had changed to a comfortable blue-and-white cotton yukata and was sitting on a cushion before the low lacquer table in her room, spreading some papers upon it. When she saw Celia, her eyes crinkled up in smile lines. What's the Japanese word for ghost? Celia asked. Gran didn't know, but she had a small dictionary at hand, and she looked up the word. Here it is. O-B-A-K-E, pronounced Obake. Let me know if you find out anything about our private ghost. It has to go into my book. 
Celia went back to Tani. What I mean is, do you think an obake really comes to the garden? Obake in garden? Tani repeated nervously. Maybe so. Then she looked at the cat. Ori neko chansi obake. The ginger cat paid no attention to this talk about ghosts. If it had any interest in whatever haunted the garden, it did not reveal it. But when it got up to follow Tani as she went to make the bed in Stephen's room, Celia looked after it with amused respect. A cat that saw ghosts might be worth cultivating.